So it is a very, very powerful way to reinforce behavior and um, to create behavior and motivate behavior. And so absolutely we can use it in a way that does not put the horse's best interest in mind and that is all about the effectiveness. And so something I say a lot now is that effectiveness is not enough. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Willing Equine Podcast. I'll be recording this episode in my car, so the audio may not be super clear, and sometimes I have my kids with me, so if you hear a little bit from them, I apologize, but hopefully you can still enjoy the podcast. I'd love to hear from you after you listen to the podcast, so feel free to comment on any of my social media platforms or email me or even send me an anchor voice message. Hello. So I hope this episode finds you guys in a really good place. I know there's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, I'm sure everybody listening to this episode during the time when I release it will understand what I'm talking about. Being March 2020, we're dealing with a little bit of an international crisis, but hopefully podcast episodes can be a little bit of an escape from what's going on in the world. So without talking about that too much more because now we're going into positive land, right? We're going to move on from everything that's going on. I want to talk to you today about ethics in positive reinforcement training and the difference between, well, not really the difference so much, but I mean, I guess. Okay, so we're <laughs> so we're going to talk about um, how, why, okay, this is what it boils down to, why positive reinforcement training doesn't automatically equal more ethical training or um, consent-based training or being a better, better type of training. Positive reinforcement in itself is just a form of operant conditioning. And operant conditioning is just a form of learning. So the way animals and people learn, we learn through operant conditioning, classical conditioning, and other forms of learning. But um, from a behavioral view, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about positive reinforcement. And positive reinforcement, for what you, for the purpose of this episode, I want to explain what that means. Um, positive reinforcement is when you apply an appetitive after a behavior is performed to increase the likelihood that the behavior will happen again in the future. And to put that in real people speak <laughs> to make it to make it more sound like it's actual human language um, what that means is that if your horse let's say they lift their lip because you're trying to teach them how to smile so let's say that they lift their lip a little bit and then you give them some food what are they going to do they're more likely to lift their lip again because they got food after they lift lifted their lip so they're going to just be like okay interesting that person just gave me food after I lifted my upper lip a little bit. So let me try that again and see if they'll give me food again. And then they will be more likely to try and lift that lip again to get the food. So they want the food. They're going to see what it is that is happening or that they are doing that causes that food to happen again. Um, One really good way of looking at this is it's operant conditioning is a way to explain the individual's well, they're operating on their environment. So they are doing things, they are behaving in ways, they are acting upon their environment to achieve one or something else. So to achieve either seeking something out that they want and like, or they are working to avoid something that they don't like and don't want to happen again. 
So when we're talking about positive reinforcement, it, I mean, from a science like we're just going to define it um, and when it's applied in the lab, it's very black and white. It's very much about, you know, can we get the animal to do this in order and then we give them this. And it's very just cut and dry. There's not a lot of emotion and feeling behind it. It does not necessarily mean that it's being done in in a way that the animal, um, I don't know, that they, that they, that it's good for them or healthy for them. I guess that's the best way to explain it. So you could, let's say that you wanted to teach a mouse to run through a maze, or you wanted to teach a dog to tug on a toy, um, or run an agility course, or I don't know, there's so many things, or even a horse, if you wanted to teach a horse how to rear. Okay. And, um, you're having a hard time getting them to rear because they don't seem really interested in the food. So we know by looking at the science and looking at how to apply positive reinforcement or make it more effective, we could withhold food. We could keep it away from them and so make them hungry so that they want the food so they are more likely to perform the behavior that we want in order to get the food. And that would absolutely fall within the category of positive reinforcement as far as in the moment reinforcing the behavior that the animal just did. The withholding aspect doesn't fall within positive reinforcement, but I'm just talking about when you go and you look at that training session and right in that training session, the person is giving the horse food for rearing. That is a positive reinforcement moment, but it doesn't mean it's ethically minded training. And so that's really what I want to, what I want to break down today is the at least how I look at ethical training and the difference between just positive reinforcement by the textbooks and using positive reinforcement in a way that um, is ethically minded and is in the horse's best interest. So to begin with, um, you know, how do we define ethical? Uh, that's going to be tough. I actually did a whole podcast episode on what defines abuse and that kind of falls within the same discussion topic. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I will say the audio is a little bit, uh, not so fabulous. So I apologize for that, but it is a really good episode to listen to because it talks, we talk about uh, with a guest speaker, the, the variability and the subjectiveness of these terms. So it can be subjective to say something is or is not abuse or neglect or ethical. Um, we're all looking at it from our own worldview, our own moral compass and how do these things develop, you know, so, and they are, um, all subject, all of our worldviews and our moral foundation and the way we look at things like what's what's ethical and what's abuse and what's not are formed by our life experiences and our understanding up to that point. So um, it's all subjective <laughs> and that's kind of what I want to get down to. And we kind of, you know, we develop this ethical code over time and based on our experiences in our life. So um, I'm going to share with you my experience and my view on these things with a full understanding that this may not be how it is for everybody. And, um, and that's, it's, it's normal. I'm not going to necessarily say like, it's okay, you know, because I don't want to go down that train of, uh, you know, what's okay for you is fine for you type thing. I'm not talking about that so much as that I fully expect, and it is normal for me to assume that somebody else might have a little different interpretation of what's ethical and what's not. So, that being said, ethical for me 
means that it puts the horse's best interest first. It means that I am prioritizing my horse's mental, emotional, and physical well-being before my own. And that it keeps everything that we're doing within a species appropriate, within a species appropriate like approach or um, goal or mindset. So it would be, you know, if my horse is, so horses are designed to graze, you know, like 17 hours a day, right? And they're designed to be out roaming around all the time. So I would say it's not ethical to restrict that grazing and then to try and train with food because we have restricted their access to something that is um, necessary for their species and then have put a contingency on it. So we have said that you must do X, Y, or Z in order to get this thing that you need as a species. Now we all need to, we need food to survive. We all need food to survive and there are contingencies, there are things that we have to do to achieve getting that food. For horses, for ourselves, everybody. I mean, we have to, um, even if we were just to break it down to the most simplest basic form, we have to get off the couch and walk over to the pantry to get the food if we're hungry, right? So those are contingencies. We can't, the food doesn't just magically appear in our lap and that's fine. Um, but, and then for our horses, you know, they have to walk and open their mouth and put their teeth and their lips on the grass and actually chew on it. And they have to seek out this grass. Those are contingencies for, um, achieving grazing and getting the food. So there are always going to be things that our horses and us that we have to do to get this thing that we need. And that's normal and it's healthy. And it's healthy for our horses to have to seek out their food. It is healthy for them to have to work to get this food. But it is not healthy for us to put them through long periods of starvation where we purposely kind of trigger this, oh my gosh, I need food and I need food right now and I'm desperate and I'm in starvation mode and I'm in winter is coming mode. And then restrict access to that food unless they do this trick that we really want them to do. And um, that's the only way they can get the food. There's, do you, I'm hoping I can, I'm expressing the difference there. Then, so there's that versus you have access to grazing most of the day and you're, you know, you're not on an empty stomach, you're not starving. Um, but here's something I'd like to train and work on and all that. And what I have is a little bit, is pretty yummy. Um, it's probably the equivalent to grazing or maybe a little bit more. And you have access to that other grass and you are not starving. But if you would like to work to get this, let's do this together. And this would be awesome. And, but you're not being forced to do it because of the sense of starvation. So there's two different ways we can work with food. And one takes into consideration the horse's basic needs and their, um, their, you know, training with their species in mind and making sure that we are not forcing them to do what it is that we want in order to obtain that necessary means for survival. And then the other one is absolutely restricting access to something they know they need to survive and then making them do what it is we want them to do in order to get it. So, this is where the ethics come in. So at what point do we say working with food is unethical versus ethical? Because you can kind of tell the difference as far as they are both positive reinforcement by textbook scientific terms, 
but one is trying to achieve that through a way that is keeps the horse in mind that is putting them first their needs first and then putting the training next it's or after that so the training is not uh, put on such a pedestal that it that causes the horse to suffer in order to achieve the training. The training happens as an add-on that is necessary for them for their well-being. They need to know how to be handled. They need to know how to have medical treatments. They need to know how to be safe around people, but not at the cost of their suffering. So that's one area we can look at the ethics of training with positive reinforcement and how positive reinforcement doesn't necessarily equal ethical training. The next area we can look at is, and it kind of all of these are with horses in particular, they're all going to connect back to that first subject, the first topic. So um, so just keep that in mind as they all kind of trace back to that. And then I'm going to start kind of refining them down into different areas. But with horses in particular, because they are a grazing animal and because they require uh, for their health to have food in their stomach at all times, um, they are all going to trace back to that basic thing where the horse needs to be eating and be fulfilled as a species in their basic needs. And then we can build on that and look to refine the different ways that we're training. So the next way we can look at training with an ethical mindset is um, through a consent-based approach, which what I call a consent-based approach. And what this means is that, again, I'm not withholding food and that they are basically satisfied on their own. They have grass or hay in their tummies. They are um, doing just fine as far as they've had access to getting to seek out their food as well, which we could go down that. I mean, we we want to... Okay, well, I'm going to go down that separately. <laughs> but um, So when we're training, we have to keep in mind that we have the food that they want even if they do have full tummies uh, horses are notorious for not really ever feeling full I mean they just don't they graze up until a certain point they don't really know they don't really have this sense of like I'm full and I'm not as far as you know we really know but um, they're a little bit different from dogs in this way so when we're training I make a point of making sure that there are other uh, there's other access to other food available. Wait, I just totally butchered that whole sentence, but there is access to other food in the training area. I make sure that there's some hay or some grass along the edges of the arena, things like that, so that the horse, if they really feel desperate or they are confused or they don't understand what you're asking for, they can just kind of you know, detach from the training and go over and graze on something else. And they don't feel like they have to do what it is that you want them to do in order to get the food. So this is another way that I bring in that initial concept, that initial, like making sure that I'm not withholding food from them into my training to help it be more ethically minded. And, um, it's important though, to make sure your horse actually knows they can get to that other food and that they are free to leave you and go over to that other food. And one of the ways I initially start this off is I train with food at their feet. Like I will put a pile of hay right at their feet while I'm training targeting. And this allows them to have immediate access that they can see right there and they don't have to go anywhere. They can just dip their heads down and get a bite of food. And that really does help. And eventually you can get further and further away from that food source and allow them to leave and disengage with you. Which allowing, but let me clarify that, means that um, you won't punish them for leaving. 
and you won't withhold food for them leaving, um, they will still get access to that other food. And then also that you might even consider reinforcing that effort from them. So for horses that I feel like get frustrated during training and won't leave me to go to other food and actually will, um, don't necessarily have the best responses to getting frustrated, meaning that they might be more prone to biting or something like that. If that horse takes a step away from me to go eat some grass or, you know, eat the hay pile at their feet, I will actually drop some of their hay pellets or treats on top of the hay. Be like, yes, good. That's it. Do that some more. Anytime you get frustrated with me, go do that. Um, so I don't use that for very long, but I will in the very beginning just to make sure they know it's okay to go get the other food. Um, so that helps with the initial concept that I was going to go on to, which was the consent. So this is a deep idea and it's really a label. Uh, it's not a true, it's a human construct, I should guess I should say. So consent, we don't know whether horses actually understand what that means, but they do understand choice and control. So they understand having a choice in what it is that they are, um, able to do in that moment that it's not that there's only one right answer or that uh that they can't say no so and really what does no look like no looks like the horse you know being able to not respond or respond in a different way and avoid being punished so they are not punished or in the sense that the food is not withheld or that they don't get a actual like a positive punisher meaning you apply something like a hit or a crop or tapping or something like that if they fail to perform in the way that you wanted them to so it's the knowledge that they can do something else and be safe still so um so consent training, consent-based training, when we look at it and understand that it's a human construct, the idea of that we can give consent for one or something to happen, um, we're not sure the horses really understand that concept. But I think it's still a very useful term or label for us to use to keep a certain goal in mind during our training. And what that means for me is that my I want my horses to be eagerly engaged in the training. I want them to come up to me in the pasture and say, let's start a training session. So that's them first saying like, let's go, let's go do this training. Like, yes, this basically for me, consent means I'm saying yes, where they're like, yes, let's do this. And they will not be forced to do it. So if my horse doesn't approach me in the pasture, I am not going to make them be caught or make them do a training session. Obviously, there are going to be certain situations where this is not a choice or an option, and um, I've talked about this before in other podcast episodes, but I'm not talking about emergency situations. I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about a normal training situation. So in a normal training situation, if my horse does not want to participate in a training session, I'm not going to make them. So that when they do come up to me and engage in a training session, when I call them over and they say, okay, let's do this, that's them giving consent to a training session. Or when I ask to get on, so I'll get on to the mounting block. And if the horse I know is very familiar with this mounting block procedure, um, if they're very familiar with this mounting block procedure and they get, you know, come up to the mounting block over and over and over again, and then on the 10th or 11th time, this time they're delayed, 
or they don't come up to it or something like that, that's them saying no. So then I know that when they say yes, they are giving consent to have the rider get on. So it's basically consent is another word for yes, like yes training, I guess you could say, where I want my horse to actively offer these behaviors. I want them to have the option to say no, but also have the option to say yes. And if they don't say yes, I will, you know, I'm going to break down like, okay, why didn't they say yes? Is it pain related? Is it training related? You know, I'm going to go down that whole bunny trail. But in the moment, it's okay for my horse not to say okay or yes or give consent. And they are free to go get the other food available. So those all kind of play together. They all work together. But I want to bring this back to how we can, those same situations could be less or uh, I guess the way non-consent based training or non-ethically minded training or I don't know you could just train without those things in mind where okay so let's say my horse doesn't want to come up to the mounting block this one time and um and I'm training with only effectiveness in mind I guess that's the best way to put it is when your only goal is effectiveness then you would only go down the trail of why isn't my horse coming up to the mounting block what do I need to do training wise do I need to you know remove the other resources that they have available so the other access to food so I'm going to take away that hay pile I'm going to take away the grass Um, do I need to put them in a smaller pen so they're less likely to be able to move away from me do I need to put on um, a piece of equipment that prevents them from moving away from me do I Um, need to use a much higher value food reinforcer so that they feel desperate to get it because it's just that much more amazing do I need to you know you would start down this trail of how can I make this horse do this and not really pay attention to how they are feeling they're you know giving them that sense of control over the environment and how they're being trained and what's happening to them Um, and having access to other reinforcers and other ways of getting that stuff. So you can absolutely continue to train with positive reinforcement in this way on those same behaviors without having that consent or ethically minded, you know, approach. So that's just kind of some of the areas that I really start to go down when, when I'm trying to explain to somebody the difference between a between just textbook positive reinforcement and ethically minded positive reinforcement training. Um, I could probably pull up some more if I'm trying to think about trying to think about what some other areas are. But really what I want to express to you guys is that well, I guess the best way to put it and I kind of already brought it up which was that Effectiveness is not enough in my book. So I don't really just train with positive reinforcement. This is why I don't say I'm a positive reinforcement trainer or that um, that I am, I don't know, I or I will say I'm a positive reinforcement trainer, but I'll say I'm a positive reinforcement focused trainer or, I can, or my training is consent based because it's not enough just to say you're training with positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement by itself does not mean you ha- are on a moral high ground. It doesn't mean that you are um, all of a sudden this better horse owner, a better horse trainer from a moral perspective or an ethics perspective. You can absolutely train in a way that is frustrating to the horse, that is um, really not positive by means or by that I mean like 
our normal way of using the word positive, like, oh, that was a positive experience, not the textbook or science version of positive, which means just apply. So textbook, science, speak, positive means to apply, negative means to uh, remove, so, or sub subtract, whatever, anyway. So positive reinforcement, you are applying a reinforcer. Negative reinforcement means you are um, removing an aversive as a reinforcer. Positive punishment means you are applying a punisher. And negative punishment means you are removing a, an appetitive or something desired as a punisher. So that's the textbook science speak. But if we're going to talk about positive as in this is a good experience for the horse, this is something pleasant and positive for them and for us and all of that, then we have to really look at how we're applying it. Um, because I think, I'm, and I'm just going to say this, that, and I might get, might get uh, backlash from this, but there are a lot of people that are training with quote unquote positive reinforcement by textbook definition that are not keeping an ethical, that are not applying it in an ethical way, that they are still focused on the effectiveness of it. And that's how I started, to be honest. When I started training with clicker training and positive reinforcement, I was all about the effectiveness. I started using it because it was effective. It was powerful. It made my horses do what I wanted them to do because it was so powerful. Food is a powerful tool in horse training. Positive reinforcement is a powerful, powerful training method and training approach. It's not really a method, but approach. It is a powerful form of operant conditioning. We learn really fast when we obtain a reinforcer that we want, especially when it's food or something like that. I mean, just think about all of the behaviors that you do day in and day out to obtain food. You will go through great lengths to go get your, you know, ice cream fix. You know, we're sitting at home in front of the TV and we really want that delicious chocolate ice cream. Shoot, we don't have any in our freezer, but man, I really want that ice cream. You will get in your, you will actually, I'm going to break this all the way down. You will get off the couch. <laughs> you will walk over to the counter. You will grab a pair of keys. You will walk all the way to your car. You will drive that car, which requires a, another whole massive set of behaviors, little behaviors that we learn over time to drive this car to the store, you will get out of your car, you will go into the store, you will find your ice cream, you'll look through all the options and find that one, then you will go and check out, you will give them your credit card or your cash, and then you will go get back in that car, and you, anyway, you get the point. So there is a massive amount of, thi like this long, long, long chain of, and sequences of behaviors that you will do to get that reinforcer, to get that food, that, to get that one thing that you want. So it is a very, very powerful way to reinforce behavior and um, to create behavior and motivate behavior. And so absolutely we can use it in a way that does not put the horse's best interest in mind and that is all about the effectiveness. And so something I say a lot now is that effectiveness is not enough for me. So when in my training I say this because I'm trying to communicate to people that it's not about the effectiveness. It is effective. That doesn't mean it's not effective just because that's not enough. It's very effective. It's very powerful. It's very, um, it's, yeah, it's very effective. But that's not all it should be, in my opinion. That's not all it's about. I will purpose, purposefully reduce the effectiveness level of the reinforcer 
to give my horses more control over the training, more um, options, and less uh, pressure to perform what it is I'm asking them for. And this is the purpose for providing other reinforcers. This is the reason that I only train with hay pellets. And sometimes I'll find that an alfalfa Timothy mix pellet is too effective as a reinforcer for certain horses. And so I will reduce it down to a Timothy pellet. So I'm using the lowest, lowest, lowest value reinforcer that my horses will even consider performing a behavior for so that they have that option if if they even think about like for a fraction of a second that they don't want to be ridden then they're happy to tell me because what I'm giving them is not like this oh my gosh I must have it ice cream it's okay that's interesting I think I like that I'll take that um, but if they don't feel up to it then they just won't take it and that's great that's what I want so effectiveness is not enough I'm going to purposefully modify my training, modify the reinforcers I'm working with, provide my horses with other options, you know, um, really, really train myself to train in a way that gives my horses more control over the learning that reduces frustration. Um, oh, that's another one. I'm going to go on a tangent because I was just about to end this episode and I decided there's another one. <laughs> there's another one. Uh, Extinction, putting horses through an extinction process, um, extinction things like, okay, so extinction, if I break this down, that's when um, a behavior was previously being reinforced and then now is no longer being reinforced, but the animal continues to perform the behavior in hopes of the reinforcer until they learn or realize that the reinforcer is no longer going to happen. So a really good example of this would be for people who have been doing clicker training with horses. Um, Okay, let's go. Cone targeting. I've seen this a lot. So old school, or not even that really old school, up until pretty recently, the common, and even this is still happening quite a bit, the common way of teaching a horse to touch the cone only when cued to touch the cone and to not touch the cone unless they're cued has been to cue, you know, teach them to touch the cone, you know, click and reinforce every time they touch the cone. Okay, now we start giving them the cue when we want them to touch the cone. So we say touch and they touch the cone and we do that once or twice. And then now we don't say touch and they touch the cone and there's no click. They touch the cone again, no click. Touch the cone again, no click. They may even paw at the cone and knock it over, no click. And then, you know, depending on the horse, this may go on for a while, or it may stop right then, and they kind of look at you like, okay, stupid human, like, why aren't you clicking me? And then you, um, then you cue touch, they're like, okay, they hesitate for a second, then they go try it again, and you click it this time. And then you repeat that cycle over and over again until they learn not to touch the cone until you say touch. Sounds effective, right? It is. It's effective, but just think about how much frustration that horse had to go through, and how Um, confused they were during that process they're like why isn't this vending machine working anymore (laughs) they're like kicking the vending machine they're just going like why is this supposed to be clicking I'm supposed to be getting food and it's not working and they're getting frustrated and they might even turn into rage behaviors like biting and pawing at it and pacing around and all kinds of stuff so it's an effective method though it is effective it does work that's why we did it for a very very long time I even trained this way for a long time but effectiveness is not enough. So how can we modify our training to help our learners be more successful and to experience less frustration and less stress in the learning experience, in the training session? Um, And while I'm 
could go on another 30 minute tangent on how to do this. I'm gonna give you a brief little quick snapshot of what that looks like, but if you wanna learn more, you can definitely check out my other resources and uh, you can contact me for a consult and then also I'll be providing information about this on my memberships and courses. So um, avoiding extinction really kind of to put it in its simplest terms or the simplest way that I can explain how I do it and this is just kind of a snapshot like I said is I will um, you know I'm teaching them to touch the cone then I associate a cue with it and then I will cue them to do something else that I know they know how to do like a backup or follow the target stick or smile or anything else that I know the horse knows how to do and is heavily reinforced while simultaneously making it more challenging to get to the cone. So I might actually pick up the cone and move it behind me. I might step between the horse and the cone. I might um, put the target stick like really, really close so that it's a really easy option for them to go the target stick versus the cone. There's a whole bunch of things you can do to block and make the cone more challenging to get to and make something else way, 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 way easier to do. So the horse will do what is makes the most sense in the moment. So if you move the cone out of the way so there's no cone and you cue a smile, they're going to be like, okay, there's no cone, so I'll just do the smile because she just cued the smile and I know how to do that and you click and reinforce. And then you bring the cone back out and you ask them to touch it and you just alternate back and forth here with these two behaviors that they know really well gradually leaving the cone more and more available as you alternate between the behaviors and now your horse understands the different cues you've created a cue discrimination um and this is just the beginning of it, but that's one way that we can create stimulus control around teaching a behavior. We can teach when to do a behavior and when not to do a behavior without that frustration of the extinction. So this is where effectiveness is not enough in how we can change and modify our training practices to be in the animal or the learner's best interest. So again, both, well, tech, anyway, yeah, <laughs> so both fall within positive reinforcement land, um, but there is a difference between textbook positive reinforcement and training that is centered around what is best for the learner that happens to also be very focused on positive reinforcement. And I will put this out there that in my opinion, the most effective form of training and sorry, the most ethical form of training and effective form of training too is to prioritize training with positive reinforcement. Um, but it needs to be skillful and needs to be done with this ethical mindset, in my opinion. Um, so a really good reference would be looking at like the Humane Hierarchy by Dr. Susan Friedman. You can Google that and you'll find some resources on that. Um, or Lima, which is least invasive, minimally aversive approach. And you can... Yeah, so the, those two, I kind of base all of my training decisions on those. And um, But I look at the learner that's in front of me, and I try and look at how I can make my horse as successful as possible while, and while also giving them a choice and control over the environment and keeping their species needs in mind and making sure that my horse is living a life that is appropriate for them so that the training then becomes an extra and it becomes this enjoyable experience for them and not something that their survival depends on basically and then also I um, 
shoot, I just lost my train of thought. Dang it, I hate when that happens in my podcast episodes. But um, so I so I look at like the humane hierarchy and oh, and then I um, yeah, I don't even remember. But I think you get the point. I just totally botched the end of this podcast episode. But hopefully you can forgive me. And I hope this gives you a really good idea of how you can train with a consent-based approach and an ethically-minded approach. And also look at other training with a critical eye. Because just because somebody says they're a clicker trainer or a positive reinforcement trainer doesn't mean that they're training with this in mind. And I'm, I'm not judging other people. I'm not saying that they're bad trainers and I'm the best. No, I'm not, not at all. This is just my focus. This is my passion and my belief and my, what I practice when I kind of say, I'll tell people or my students, TWE's best practices. Like these are, I try my hardest to prioritize my learner's well-being, And, um, and that is also in brought into the way that we're using positive reinforcement. So I just don't want people to get stuck in this idea that positive reinforcement automatically means better or moral high ground or that it's positive by our the, the English language form of positive and the way we think of the word positive. When we're looking at positive reinforcement from the textbook perspective, it does not necessarily mean better or more enjoyable or um, more pleasant for the learner. It just means the you're applying a reinforcer after the behavior happens. But when I say positive reinforcement, I'm also referring to the textbook science and I'm referring to making it a pleasant and enjoyable experience for the horse. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more, head to my website, thewillingequine.com. On there, I have a really extensive blog. I'm a very prolific writer. And I also have a an FAQ page. And the FAQ has all kinds of things. It has questions and answers about training and about my training specifically, as well as just general about working with positive reinforcement. There's also sections on there about health and um, behavior. So all of that. I'm also on a lot of different social media platforms, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. So check those out and I'd love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to email or send me a message.